0: Well, there on page 12, you'll find Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And to remind you, our catechism has been broken up into the 52 Lord's Days of the year to organize our walk through the doctrines of the faith. And today we arrive at question and answers 9 through 11. Let's read those responsively together. But doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? No, God created man with the ability to keep the law. Man, however, at the instigation of the devil, in willful disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with the sin we are born with, as well as our actual sins. God will punish them by a just judgment, both now and in eternity, having declared, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. But isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful, but He is also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty. Eternal punishment of body and soul. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his help to open our eyes to understand what his word says. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to look upon us in grace as we look away from ourselves into the face of your Son whom you have appointed our Mediator and Savior. As all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in your Son, guide us by your Holy Spirit into the true understanding of the doctrines of Christ. May our meditation upon his truth produce in us the fruit of righteousness, to the glory and exaltation of his name, the instruction and building up of this congregation, and the salvation of the lost through our witness. We pray this in the name and favor of your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and a dependence on his Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's imagine for a moment that an entrepreneur has started a new business, and he has one main investor, a very wealthy man who's put up a lot of money, a small fortune, to get this business started for this entrepreneur. And things begin to go well, the business expands, and so this entrepreneur hires some employees for him. And the employees are honest, hard-working fellows, and uh, all these folks who are on staff are helping the business to thrive. But secretly, without anyone knowing about it, the very entrepreneur who started the business is stealing money from the company. And once the investor finds out about this, this wealthy man who's put up all this money and taken big risks, once he finds out, he pulls back, takes all the money away, the company folds, and everyone loses his or her job. Now, it was only the entrepreneur who did the bad thing, but everybody under him suffered for it. Everybody lost their jobs because of the behavior of one. Now, that is a real world and imperfect illustration of a tension that we feel when it comes to the doctrine of sin in the Christian faith. The catechism has been saying for us these last few weeks that we have inherited a sinful nature from our first father, Adam. And just a reminder that our catechism comes in three sections, guilt, grace, gratitude. It's been kind of a uh, morbid few weeks, but the grace section is just around the corner. Okay? The grace section is just around the corner. So bear with the catechism as we are explaining and understanding what it means to be sinners. And one of those hard, intense doctrines that we wrestle with is this one, that Adam sinned and we all sinned in him. Because we have come from him. Like the employees in the illustration, we often ask, is it fair that we have been punished because of Adam's sin? Why does God punish sinners at all? If he's God, can't he just turn a blind eye, sweep it under the rug and move on? Why does God punish sinners? Let's look at three answers to that particular question as guided by our catechism this evening. The first reason why God punishes sin is because of our sin. He punishes us because we are sinners and because we sin. In scripture, God is shown to be a a being who has real enemies that he has to do something about. Enemies who will not repent of their sins, they, they won't turn away from them, And so God is placed in a position where he must punish them for their sin and unrepentance. We read earlier in our scripture reading from Exodus chapter 15 that the Lord shatters the enemy. Verse 6. The Lord flung Pharaoh and his great army of chariots into the bottom of the Red Sea and sank them down like a stone, like lead, the song of Moses said. And that that kind of great image of judgment that comes throughout the Old Testament, this being kind of uh, chief among them, is an image of the punishment that is due to sin. All sin deserves to be punished. The Apostle Paul says, the wages of sin is death. If you have a job and you put in the work, then you get a wage for it. Well, if your work consists of sin, then your payment is death. The wages of sin is death. In other words, if what you put in is sin, then what comes out is the punishment of death. <clears throat> Question and answer 10 in the Catechism lists for us very helpfully two categories of sin that God is said to be angry with throughout Holy Scripture. The Catechism first calls um, one type of sin, the sin we are born with. sin we are born with. In Christian theology, this is often called original sin. So if you've ever heard that phrase, this is what we are talking about. The sin that we are born with. And the point of calling it original sin is that that connects us to Adam, our first father. And that is not a man-made kind of theologizing connection, you know, connecting dots that aren't there. But it is a connection that is made plain as day, especially in Romans 5, where Paul says things like this. He says, one trespass led to condemnation for all people. One trespass, meaning the sin of Adam, has led to all being condemned. Guilty of sin and therefore punished for it. That's in verse 18 of Romans 5. Or the very next verse, Romans chapter 5 verse 19. Paul says, for by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. It is an inescapable connection that we all have. All of us, men, women, and children. It does not matter where you come from, your ethnicity, your background, whether you were raised right or not. We all share in the sin of Adam. Adam has sinned originally, and the consequence is that he has passed it down to all of us. Like the employees from that illustration, they are suffering for the transgressions of one. Or like children who suffer because they have wicked parents. Or like uh, citizens who are exiled out of their country because they have an unjust king. There's a certain leadership role, a corporate identity that scripture talks about. And the leader, Adam, has led us all astray. And we, in him, united to him, naturally speaking, have fallen. That's original sin. Adam sinned and we have become sinners in him. That's a sin we are born with. The catechism also says that we have actual sins. Actual sins. If original sin is what makes us who we are, Actual sins refers to what we do. I think there's confusion in our day and age that goes along the lines of this. People think, I am a sinner because I have sinned. But it's actually the other way around. We are already sinners. We are born that way. And therefore, we commit sins. And actual sins refers to those things that we actually do. These are the transgressions that we commit against God and our neighbor with our thoughts, with our words, with our deeds. Again, back to that opening illustration, the immoral boss is the one who led led all of his employees to get fired. But now let's say that those employees decide to steal from someone else. Or they're angry that they've lost their jobs and so they take out their rage on their family. Or whatever it happens to be. Now then, they have not only suffered because someone else has done a sin in in, kind of in their place, but they're committing actual sins themselves with their own volition. Now, God is angry with both kinds of sins. The sin we are born with, as well as our actual sins. And God will punish them by a just judgment. It's, it's justice. And this is 100% certain. He is a just judge. And he cannot allow sins to go unpunished. The question in Christian theology is who will face the punishment? Sins will be punished. Sins will be punished. They must be punished. But the question is who will face that punishment? And brothers and sisters, this is why Christ had to suffer. (coughs) Jesus Christ was not born into sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a pure virgin. He was not conceived and born in sin. He does not have this sharing with Adam's sin. Neither did he commit any actual sins in thought, word, and deed, but always was perfect and innocent, pure and holy, in all that he said and thought and did. And so he alone can be our substitute who stands in our place when, when the, the, the almighty rod of God's wrath comes down. It is Jesus who willingly takes the punishment for repentant sinners. And the amazing result of this act from Jesus Christ is that the guilt that lays upon you because of your original and actual sins, is gone. The guilt, which is substantial and deserving of the wrath of God, is forgiven forever. God punishes sin, and he punishes us because of our sin, but he has provided a way through. Secondly, God punishes sinners because of his law. He punishes sin because of his law. Another reason... Uh, that we find throughout the scriptures that there is retribution from God towards sinners is because His law demands it. His law demands it. We learned a few weeks ago that the law of God is an expression of God's own righteousness. when When we speak about the law of God, we're not speaking about something else completely separate from God. When he gives commands, it is him expressing his own standard of justice. It's him speaking to us what he demands. Now then, here's what that law says. Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. That's found originally in Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. The law of God requires perfect obedience. And we are called to obey his law, not just outwardly. You know, he says things like, you shall not steal. Well, okay, I'm actively not stealing. That's, you know, we think we're good to go by that outward obedience. But it's not just outward obedience. But it must also come from a heart that sincerely loves God all the time without fail from the moment you rise to the moment you go to sleep and no wicked dreams and for all of your life. And if you've sinned in the past, that's a debt that you can't get rid of. Now, hopefully you can see that there is something very wrong that you must deal with, that you must come to terms with. Because God's righteous standard of judgment, His own very law, says that you must obey all the things written in the book of the law, or else face the curse of God. His dreadful punishment. The, the punishment that when we contemplate it, oh, it is very uncomfortable. That dreadful thing that lays upon your conscience when you know you've done something wrong. The curse rests upon those who'd, who fail to live up to his perfect commands and his righteous standards. But as we have seen the reason for Christ's suffering in our first point tonight, here now we see the reason why Christ also had to be obedient. He not only had to suffer in our place, but he had to positively obey in our place. Obey the law of God. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul picks up on this command back from Deuteronomy in Galatians. This is what we read from earlier. Paul goes on to explain that since we cannot obey all these commandments, then we are all indeed under that curse. Curse Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey. And that curse is upon us, except that Christ has come to redeem. He has come to redeem All those who are under the curse. The Son of God has humbled himself, not only by suffering in our place, but also by submitting to the law of God. Paul says elsewhere in that same book of Galatians, um, in the fullness of time, Christ was born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. He's purchased us back from the slavery of that law. That dreadful curse that is upon us is now gone for those who have turned to Christ by faith because he has perfectly observed and obeyed all the things written in the book of the law. Someone's got to do it. That someone is not you. You have not done it. Christ has done it. And this gracious act from Jesus redeems you from the curse. Lastly, this evening... Why does God punish us? Punishes us because of sin, because of his law, and lastly because of his majesty. Many people find these topics very uncomfortable. I feel it too. You know, it is not a pleasant thing to think about the judgment of God, the punishment of God, the eternal nature of God's punishment of sinners who don't turn to him. Very uncomfortable. It is hard to think about God being retributive and punishing. It's hard. But it's true. And we don't understand the magnificence of the gospel and of his grace unless we also understand what a terrible position we find ourselves in apart from Christ. We don't understand the the absolute depths of despair that we find ourselves in unless Christ intervenes. Perhaps the main reason why we resist these kinds of teachings about judgment is because we don't think very highly of His majesty. But He is the majestic God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is the holy, holy, holy God who has always existed and has no beginning and no end, and just is. And he is majestic. He is the judge of all the earth. Splendor and majesty are before him. He is a consuming fire, and his voice flashes like flames of fire. He dwells in unapproachable light. His way is in the whirlwind and in the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. We could go on and on and on, reading about the majestic nature of Almighty God. And to sin against this supreme majesty means it must be punished with the supreme penalty. Eternal punishment of body and soul. There is no other way for a majestic God who dwells in an approachable life to deal with sin except to give it what it deserves. And it is the supreme penalty of the punishment of both the body and the soul for eternity. And, brothers and sisters, it does not matter how little the sin seems to be in our own eyes, because the majesty of God does not change, and there is not degrees to his majesty. There may be degrees to our sin. Some sins are more heinous than others in the sight of God. That is true, that's in Scripture. But all sins, regardless of how big they are and offensive and heinous they are, all of them are an offense against the same almighty majesty. And so they must be punished. Those sins must be dealt with. Now think about this. The same supremely majestic God is also the supremely gracious God. We are not speaking about two gods or a God who has a split personality but the same God whose majesty demands the eternal punishment of body and soul of those who will not bow the knee to Christ is the same God who has provided forgiveness for sins that sinners might have fellowship with the almighty and majestic God. He who has seriously threatened judgment has himself undergone the judgment. The one who has threatened the judgment, Almighty God himself, has, through Jesus Christ, undergone that very judgment. That is what our Lord Jesus has suffered for us. He has faced the torments of hell for us. What was due to us, He has now experienced on the cross, body and soul, the great and dreadful rod of God's wrath and all the fury of God poured out on an innocent sufferer who stands in our place and grants us forgiveness. He has faced those torments and He has come through it to be raised in glory. The same majesty that demands your punishment has also graciously spared you from that punishment and raised you up to be seated with Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, though we learn from Scripture, it is inescapable that God punishes us because of our sin, because He's majestic, because His law demands it, this same God nevertheless is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, original and actual sins. All the sins we commit in thought, word, and deed, those are washed away forever by the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God, you build your church on the foundation of the doctrine of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And so we pray that you would bless our congregation to grow in their teaching. Assist us in meditating with joy on your mighty acts. Enlighten our minds more and more with the light of the everlasting gospel. Kindle in our hearts a love of your truth. Nourish us with the full counsel of the word of God. Enable us to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And defend us from the sins of heresy and schism. And as we have heard the true doctrine proclaimed to us, by your great blessing may it be preserved among us and propagated through us by our lips and our lives to the glory of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all the people of God said together, Amen. Amen.